Well, this morning, if my uh, voice fades out, I apologize. Uh, I was at General Assembly this week, uh, actually with Kevin. We had uh, breakfast the, the last day, and as we were talking, I heard this little crack develop, and I thought, oh, no. And I, and I realized even, uh, even a pastor can get talked out. Uh, my wife wouldn't have believed it before this week, I don't think. Um, I've, been a, I've been an ordained minister in the Presbyterian Church of America for 10 years, and uh, when I first started going, I was so excited just to, to meet new folks, new elders, new pastors. And, and I've realized over the years that I, I have met so many that I've, I've now started to for, forget who I, I've met. And I realize kind of the, the, there are half of you here that look at me as a child and half of you here that look at me as, uh, uh, you know, applying for Santa Claus positions at Macy's this year. I realize that. And I, and I realize that, you know, we have these relationships sometimes, people that we love, people that we cared about. We just don't see them for a decade or two decades. And they still matter to us, and we see them again. And, and if we had an opportunity, we would say, let's, let's get together. You might, you might see a friend. Maybe you knew them as a child, maybe in college. And you say, hey, I would, I would love to get together and get a cup of coffee. And they say, well, sorry, I, I, I don't like coffee. <laughs> you say, oh, okay. Well, um... Let's get ice cream. And they say, I'm, I'm lactose intolerant. <laughs> and you say, okay, I, I, there's a great bakery down the road. We'll go over there. And they say, actually, I, I can't do any gluten. And you say, oh. You know, we, we have these relationships where we think we know someone. We think we know them really well. We know the ins and outs of how to interact with them. And then we take a second look and we realize, maybe I don't know this person as well as I thought I did. See, the Pharisees thought they knew God. They were quite confident. They were quite proud of the fact that they knew God. They knew what he liked, what he didn't like. They knew how to talk to him, how to not talk to him. And then all of a sudden, this Jesus fellow shows up. And he says, I've come from God. And then all of a sudden, the people that God starts hanging out with are not the kind of people that the Pharisees thought God was friends with. And they realize, or, or maybe Jesus hopes that they realize, that maybe they didn't know God as well as they thought that they did. It's a question worth asking, not just of those people over there, but, but of us. From someone who maybe is here, and you say, I, I'm spiritual but not religious, I, I just got dragged here by a friend or a loved one, to someone who's an old saint... Do we know God as, as well as we think we do? Now, Jesus tells two stories in this passage. And he tells them in response to the fact that Luke records that there were tax collectors, which were basically a group of Jewish people who had kind of lent their services to the Roman occupation. In our day and age, um, if we would say this. If it was a, a Clinton county... They were Trump supporters. If it was Trump country, they had a Bernie Sanders sign in the yard. They were people that were just alien. And, and we, we read this and we think, we probably live in a moment where finally the, the anger towards someone who has chosen a different political system all of a sudden becomes apparent. But he says, Jesus is eating with the tax collectors and the sinners. Just the sinners 
those terrible people, the sinners. And the Pharisees and the scribes, they're, they're still around Jesus, but they grumble. And so he tells three stories. Three stories back to back. The first two are shorter, and that's what we're going to focus on. And the third one, it's much longer. It's called the story of the prodigal son. But in these first two stories, Jesus lays out this pattern, this response to their grumbling about God's choice of friends. In the first, he says, there's a shepherd. And he realizes that one of his sheep out of his flock of a hundred is gone. And he leaves the 99. It says an open country. Now, in the, in the hymn that we just sang, I, I, I grew up in the RPCNA for a big chunk, and I tried to sing it. I won't, I won't say I sang it. But I tried. That It says the, sh- the sheep were left in safety. But we don't really know that in the passage. It doesn't give us that communication. It just says they were left in the open country. And we don't know how long the pursuit was. But that one sheep is worth the, the 99 being kind of left on their own. Which makes the shepherd in this passage, from, from many people's perspective, the, the worst businessman you could possibly imagine. That he would say, I, I forgot one, and I'm going to leave everything I have behind. And in the other story, there's a woman who realizes that she has lost one coin. And she doesn't just say, eh, it'll turn up. So she she turns her house upside down looking for it. Yesterday, when I got back from General Assembly, I wanted to mow the lawn. And we had just gotten a lawnmower. It's one of these big industrial lawnmowers that had been given to us by my wife's uncle. And I was kind of nervous that the kids, when I was gone, would try to mess with the lawnmower. And so I took the key out of the lawnmower before General Assembly. And then I went to turn the lawnmower on after General Assembly. And I could not find the key anywhere. And we turned the house upside down. And I did not have the luck that that one woman who found the coin did. There were no friends over celebrating with me. The, the, the key is still lost. But right when, you, when there's something that's important to you, keys are kind of a, a great example, right? In the ancient world, that little coin could have been worth half of all she had. Well, not half of all she had, but a tenth of all she had anyway. And it's worth finding. The same way that, that if you have your keys to your car and they go missing, it's not, oh, well, we'll find them. Maybe a week or two go by. You, you kind of freak out. Right? You turn the house over, you get anger and anger, everyone around you gets blamed, and then you settle down, you say a little prayer, Jesus, please let me find my keys, and then they're probably in your pocket. But this woman has swept her whole house, and she finds the coin, and she celebrates with her friends. Now, in, in both of these passages, that which is lost doesn't wander back. It's important to see that. Right, this is not a, a Disney movie where this lost pet ends up 300 miles away from everybody and after a series of adventures and antics, it ends up on the front porch of the house. In this story, the focus and the energy is that the one who lost the sheep, the woman who lost the coin, is the one seeking it out, pursuing it. And in both stories, it's, it's, Jesus is... It's challenging sometimes. In both stories, he asks these scribes, these Pharisees, 
these grumblers, to put themselves into the shoes of the story. He, just, he does it kind of subtly. What man of you having a hundred sheep? These good religious people would have said, I don't have sheep. I don't need to have sheep. But he says, what man of you having a hundred sheep? He asks that in the first story. In the second story, he says, put yourselves in the shoes of a woman who's lost a tenth of all of her worldly possessions. Which is interesting. Because in the ancient world, right, women were seen as economically, socially, spiritually below men. Now, none of it is actually true. It's really important for you to hear me say that. None of it is actually true. But women were in a, in a disadvantaged position. Where if a woman testified in a court of law against a man, they said a woman cannot be trusted as much as of a man's testimony in court. And this extended beyond Judaism, even into the Roman Empire. If you were a Roman widow, you only had a certain number of years before you were in danger of losing your citizenship if you didn't remarry. Which made Paul a radical when he said, if you're a widow and you want to remain a widow, stay a widow. Women were seen as, as kind of a, a two-thirds compromise in the eyes of the religious world. And the, the church that we belong to, the Presbyterian Church in America, we, um, we are sometimes criticized as seeing women as less capable or less significant or less valuable to the life of the church. The PCA does not believe any of that. We don't. We do not see women as inferior to men. And anybody who would think that needs some correcting. But while we don't see women as inferior, we also don't see them as interchangeable. Now, to get further into that would be a whole two or three sermons. So I'll leave that up to Kevin just to just kind of take that one up. Then he says, put yourself in the shoes of a shepherd. Shepherds were just slightly above women and pagans. These were men that lived outside of the city, outside of the ability to easily participate in all the extra religious customs that had accumulated on top of Judaism like barnacles on a ship. It wasn't that they couldn't be good Jews. It was that all the rules that had been added to Judaism made it impossible for them to keep up with everybody else in terms of washing and rites and all of that. And so they had just been kind of put aside. You don't even know where these men eat. Where do they drink, these filthy people? They'd sleep next to their dirty sheep. So they were seen as almost outside. There was a phrase that was used to describe shepherds and other People, they were the people of the land. People of the land. It would be kind of equivalent of what we would today call a redneck. Now, Jeff Foxworthy has made that a funny phrase, but it really is kind of a, a derogatory thing. To point out that many of us make enough money, have gone to enough school, that we don't have to go outside in the sun and get baked by its heat and show the redness of our neck. 
And it's really interesting, though. When we, when we look at this passage, he, he pushes us to put ourselves in these positions that we kind of don't necessarily want to push ourselves towards. Why does he do this? Why does he do this in the story? To, to this original audience, he pushes them to think about themselves in categories that it would have been lower down the socioeconomic totem pole. Well, I think he does it because in part, he, Jesus knows our hearts. And he knows how twisted we really are inside. The other day, I was, um, I was, I was on a, a pastor's forum. You know, Facebook can be healthy or toxic, even for pastors. And I was on a forum discussing with other pastors just kind of how the General Assembly went. And many brothers said, you know, I was really encouraged by the charity that men gave and by the encouragement men gave. And, and there was one guy, and, I, and I, I'm sure he, he meant well by it. But he said, you know, I think there are times for harsh words. He said, what comes to mind is get behind me, Satan. Now, if you just pause and think about that for one second. Get behind me, Satan, Satan was a statement that Jesus said. Which meant that when this man was thinking about controversy and conflict, his desire was to put himself in the shoes of God. And we, not just... One elder does that. Not just most of the elders do that, unfortunately. We'd want to be higher up than we really are. All of us do this. We'd, we'd rather be above people. We'd rather be going up the socioeconomic ladder. We want to put ourselves higher and higher up. And yet, here's, here's the beauty of Christianity. God has no problem being associated with the bottom of society. So in this story, these Pharisees ask Jesus, why are you spending your time with sinners? And he says, let me tell you. And he puts himself in the place of a shepherd. He invites us to imagine him as a shepherd looking for that one lost sheep. And he invites us to put him into the role of a woman cleaning her house. The God of the whole universe has no problem associating himself with people that society considers unimportant or insignificant. But why are they why are they bothered? Well, these sinners are too close to Jesus. And the Pharisees, what they've done is they've created basically a grid of faithfulness. A bureaucracy of faithfulness. We all live in New York. We understand bureaucracy. I'm still trying to apply for the star discount on, my, my, uh, on our property. And, and I filed paperwork after paperwork after paperwork. And then just the other day, we got a notice in the letter, you need a little bit more paperwork. We all understand bureaucracies. And what the Pharisees had did was they created this grid... And they said, you need to do A through Z. And sometimes if you hit Y at the wrong time of the month, you've got to go back and you've got to start over at C. It became more and more confusing. And they demanded certain language. They demanded certain postures. They demanded certain formalities. They had a formula of faith and growth. And they said, this is how God works. And if you want to work with God, then you've got to work like this. They even thought that certain people were just so bad that they really, what they had to do 
was they had to get themselves cleaned up first, and then they could try to approach God. And all of it is just absolute garbage. It's absolutely destructive. And yet, we can say those, those silly Pharisees. Them, they didn't get it, we get it. But Christians are great at doing this. You know, there was, a, there was several decades that two Presbyterian groups that agreed on everything except for what they should emphasize, someone's testimony or someone's love of Westminster Shorter Catechism and Confession of Faith. They separated for decades over that. They sang the same songs. They said the same prayers. They loved the same doctrines. And yet they emphasized different things. And they said, we can't talk to those people over there. How many of us say that if your faith doesn't look a certain way, I'm just not quite sure what to do with you. We were at Presbytery a few months ago. And we were telling a story of just the way that God has been working in Cobleskill. And... uh, and I made a joke, and I said, if, if we weren't reformed, we would say, it was a God thing. I said, but we're reformed. So we say, the providence of the Lord smiled upon us. <laughs> and there, there are these things, right? I, I became a Christian in the Assemblies of God Church. And I was squinted at because I did not speak in tongues. And then I became a Presbyterian, and I was squinted at because when, when I... Get into a song, I raise my hands, and you will hear me say, Amen. That we, we, we kind of look at groups and we defy it and we say, I'm just not quite sure about you. And then do you know what happens? We're all terrified that we're not doing it right. We're terrified that we're not doing it right. We're terrified that we're missing something. And so then no one shares what's going on in their life because they're terrified someone is going to say, you've got to go back to A. And there's this whole group of people in the story. Jesus never says these people aren't sinners. They're sinners. They're sinners. And yet they're walking towards Jesus. They're sinners who say, I want to be close to that guy. For Jesus, that's enough. It's amazing. He's not, he's not suspicious of them. Right? The Pharisees chose to look at these people with everything that they had done wrong in their life. Jesus, who is God, God in that moment was choosing to look at these people for their willingness to respond in repentance. When Jesus uses the story of the sheep, it turns out that when, when sheep get lost, they just kind of freak out and eventually they, they fall down. But if they hear their shepherd calling to them, they will muster up enough energy to call back. Because normally it's dark. There's no GPS trackers for most shepherds. They're wandering in the dark, looking for a sheep, and they're calling out, and then they're listening for the call. So Jesus says that one sheep is willing to call out And the shepherd is willing to go to him. It doesn't say that the sheep has to run an obstacle course first. It doesn't say that the sheep has to, um, you know, memorize shorter catechism 1 through 15, and then we'll get to the next, next month. 
The sheep calls out, and God saves them. And it's hard. I think what happens is that we, we interact with folks, and, and we're, we're just not sure what to do. And, and we are worried that maybe we're, we're doing something wrong in, in our own faith, in our own life. And we're still following that pharisaical rule which says that I've got to do something for Jesus. And the truth is, I have to rest on what Jesus has done for me. And so we're, we're a little bit worried. We're a little bit suspicious. But God is not suspicious. God is not a skeptic. We live in an incredibly skeptical age. God is not a skeptic. God celebrates, Jesus says. He rejoices when one sinner repents. He rejoices when one sinner repents. See, it's funny. In the story, we can say he is, he is absolutely not a skeptic. But there's kind of this funny thing that he is a pessimist. That he does see the glass as half empty. Because you could say, look, there are 99 righteous people, God. And he says, there's one missing. And that's what I'm focusing on, he says. There's all this good. There are all these people loving God, living their lives under the reign of Christ. And yet God says to us, right, that he is more pleased with one lost person out there being saved than all of us sitting safely in here. He's more pleased. He celebrates. He sings. I I just found out that they're making another new Winnie the Pooh movie. And I was thinking to myself, if I was to think about Jesus in the story of Winnie the Pooh, right? it's kind of Christopher Robbins and all these emotions that he's growing up with. What, what character in that story would you associate with God? Maybe, maybe not Eeyore. Maybe not Rue. Nobody knows what Rue is there for in the story anyway. <laughs> Presbyterians, maybe Eeyore. Right? Maybe. Maybe, maybe Rowl, uh, Owl or, or the, the rabbit. I think Tigger. <laughs> Isn't that kind of funny? That's what Jesus says here. He says, all of heaven is jumping up and down, bouncing in celebration and song over one person, recognizing their need for Jesus Christ, recognizing that there is nothing that they have to do but say to Him, would you come and care for me and rescue me? And the whole of heaven is bouncing up and down. We live in an old farmhouse, and when the kids are jumping up upstairs... The whole house shakes. Can you imagine that kind of excitement in heaven? As the whole of heaven celebrates one person lost being found. If it bothers you, I would encourage you to read the third story. In the third story, we we tend to focus on the younger son. But there are some of us that need to focus on the older son who is with his dad and his dad loves and all he's doing though is upset and jealous that he doesn't get the same attention he doesn't think and his father finally says you have been with me the whole time 
Everything that I have is yours. But that's kind of beyond the scope of this passage. Jesus says, I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Do we have that same joy? Does that motivate our life? Even when it doesn't demean our demands. Even when God's grace is offered to people that we are uncomfortable with. We have to see that God rejoices over repentance. He rejoices over repentance. See, those people that have gathered around Jesus... Jesus was was looking at their face. And their face said, someone that wants to be close to him. And he rejoiced. And the Pharisees were standing back. And all they could see were, were what was behind them, basically. The things that they had come from. The sins that they had dragged towards God. And they said, that's terrible. But God rejoices over our repentance. Lord, we are so thankful for your holy word, for the way that you nudge us, the way that you you prod us, the way that you provoke us. In truth, Lord, we are all here because at one moment we were that lost sheep. Maybe there are still some of us who are are that lost sheep, trying to figure out what this means, (laughs) trying to decide whether or not we're even offended to be called a lost sheep. those of us that have been found know that we couldn't have found our way back to you. That you were the one who picked us up and brought us home and celebrated over us. And so we thank you for that, Lord. We pray that we would have as much joy in the next person being brought home as you did when you brought us home. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.